our Lord Jesus Christ. About 500 years ago, Martin Luther, in 1518, held a conference in Heidelberg. And he spoke about two theologies, the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. Now, which of those sounds more attractive to you? The theology of glory sounds good. It sounds nice. But it's anything but. It's the exact opposite of the gospel. You see, the theology of glory thinks that God and the kingdom of God conform to the way that the world around us is, this fallen world. The theology of glory goes by the world's power structures, by the world's definition of success. The theology of glory delights in the world's acceptance. But the the theology of the cross understands that things are different in the kingdom of God. The theology of the cross understands that the power structures in the kingdom of God has the power structures of the world turned upside down. The Lord Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And he told the leaders in his church to have the same attitude. The theology of the cross is counterintuitive for the fallen sinner. The theology of the cross teaches us he who seeks his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. It teaches that my power is made perfect in weakness. It teaches that when I am weak, then I am strong. It teaches that life comes through death, that glory comes through humiliation. The theology of the cross goes against every fiber, every grain of our fallen nature. And the theology of glory is a delight to the heart and to the soul of fallen sinners. Now in our text, Peter discovers the utter bankruptcy of the theology of glory. The theology of the cross says, if you would be my disciple, you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, you must follow Jesus. But Peter doesn't do that. We read about him tentatively following Jesus from a safe distance back there in verse 58. And the words in the Greek there, Peter was following him at a distance. It's all very tentative and very distant and very safe for Peter. He doesn't want to get too committed here. It's not the kind of following Jesus had in mind when he said, take up your cross and follow me. And instead of denying himself, Peter denies his Lord. 
Now let's back up for a bit. What's going on in this context here in this chapter? Peter took leadership among the disciples. He was a preeminent disciple. And he took leadership in good things. If you flip back a few pages to Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, the Lord Jesus says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they give various answers. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And in Matthew 16, verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter took leadership. Peter confessed the Christ. He confessed the truth of the gospel. He recognized Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a glorious confession. And it's a confession upon which Jesus said he would build his church. In fact, Peter even gets his name, the name by which we know him. He gets his name from this confession of his, from his rock-solid confession of this rock-solid fact that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him in this chapter 16, he says, Simon Barjona, because that's Peter's birth name, he says, this truth is revealed to you from heaven. You didn't make this up. God revealed it to you. And I'm going to build my church on this rock-solid foundation, this, this Petra. And therefore, your name is going to be Peter, Petros, from now on. So every time we read the name Peter, every time Simon Barjona heard his new name, Peter, he was reminded of that glorious confession Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's a problem. As awesome as all of this is, there's a problem. Peter, right after this glorious confession, doesn't accept what Jesus teaches about the way to get there. If you look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's what it means to be the Christ. It means suffering. It means death. It means resurrection. And Peter says, Jesus, I may recognize you as Messiah, but I do not accept the way that the Messiah must walk. No way. Never going to happen. None of I can help it. And what is Jesus' response to, to Peter? Just a few verses after Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on this confession you made, Peter. In fact, I'm going to name you Rock. And now, just a few verses later, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So what's the problem? Well, Peter is willing to, to rejoice in to recognize that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. That's all fine. 
But Peter is not willing to accept what it will take for the Christ to redeem his people. Peter is not willing to pay the price. Peter does not accept the way of the cross, the theology of the cross. Peter is still addicted to the theology of glory. You see, Peter's view of salvation work is still oh so human-sized. It's all about winning and conquering and success and glory, the things that are in the heart of man ever since Adam and Eve fell. And so while Peter may recognize the office of the Christ, he rejects the work that the Christ must do, the way that the Christ must walk, the way of suffering, of humiliation, the way of death. What does Jesus instruct his disciples in verse 24 of chapter 16? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, you've got to abandon the theology of glory, Peter. You've got to embrace the theology of the cross. Well, it took Peter a long time to figure that out, and he still hasn't got it figured out at this point in the scriptural record. You see it again in our chapter of our text, Matthew chapter 26, and you remember that from, from last week in verse 31, Christ preached the word. And as Matthew loves to do, he speaks about the fulfillment of what is written. The scripture must be fulfilled. And the Lord Jesus says, it will be fulfilled in me. How will God's people be saved? While the words of the prophet Zechariah must be fulfilled, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's the way. That's the way of the cross. And there's Peter again in the next verse. And Peter says, no, no, Jesus, never going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen. The Spirit-inspired Word may say that to save your people, you need to die alone. But I am not going to let the Word of God become true. Peter rejects the way of the cross. So how does that work out for him? Well, if you look at the next verses, verses 36 through to 46, as there's the prayer in the garden, what do we see? This brave warrior who will stick by Jesus even in the face of death. This brave warrior is slain by that great enemy, sleep. He leaves Jesus to struggle in prayer alone three times. Now, isn't that rather awkward? Isn't that rather foreshadowing? As we come to verse 47, and Judas comes onto the scene, probably about midnight or after midnight, and finally Peter wakes up. In verse 51, we know from the Apostle John, we know that in verse 51, the guy that cut off the servant's ear was, was Peter. He, he draws his sword. He's, he starts to try to implement 
his theology of glory. And once again, he rejects the way of the cross. And the Lord Jesus, in the midst of all his suffering, has to tell Peter once again, Peter, pipe down. I have enough force on my side, Peter. I can have legions of angels if that's necessary, but that's not really the point. Look at verse 54. How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Look at verse 56. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Peter, as I am trying to fulfill my task. You're running around with your sword and making a fool of yourself. You think you're trying to help, but you're hindering. And consistently with your theology of glory, your loud, boastful protestations that you will single-handedly prevent my suffering, you stand in the way of my redeeming work. It is not of man that redemption will be accomplished. Because redemption is a work that no human power can accomplish unaided. And then in verse 57 and following, Jesus is dragged most likely to the home of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas pro- probably lived with his father-in-law in a, in a, a large house with a, with a bunch of buildings built around a courtyard. And to get into that inner courtyard, you would have to go through kind of a covered entryway, much like our, our entranceway to the church here. If you can imagine this would be the courtyard, there will be no roof. And then there will be all uh, a double-story housing all the way around. And the second story would go over the entrance. So to get to the street, you would go through this kind of tunnel. And that's where Jesus is brought. Now, as Jesus is on trial here, and he goes through several trials, a number of trials throughout the night, first of all before the Jews, and later on in the morning before the civil authorities, the Romans. He does not deny who he is. He, he professes to be the Son of Man. He tells the high priest, you will see me at the right hand of God coming on the clouds in judgment. And the high priest knows what that means. The high priest knows what the scripture says. The one who rides upon the clouds is God Almighty, is Yahweh himself. And so the high priest says, blasphemy. He says he's the Messiah, the son of the living God. But he's just some poor, insignificant Galilean. And they begin to set upon him, to spit on him, to strike him to mock him for being who Peter confessed him to be. You remember chapter 16, right? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the confession that Jesus just made there in that room. Peter's here in the courtyard. Right there in that room, Jesus made the confession. Peter could probably hear it. Instead of standing up and saying yes and amen, He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is sitting outside. The theology of the cross is happening right in that room. 
You know, we're used to Canadian architecture where everything's insulated and everything's closed and the doors are closed and the windows are closed. But in this kind of a climate, the windows are often just big openings and the doors will be open because of the heat or because of the needing air because so many people are in the room. So that would be something that Peter probably would have been able to hear what was going on. Right there in that room, the ancient prophecies are being fulfilled. The prophecy, for instance, of Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So in there, there's Jesus and the theology of the cross. But here in the courtyard, there is Peter operating with the theology of glory. What was he doing there? Or verse 58 tells us. He sat with the guards to see the end. The end. That's where this gets you, Jesus, all this humiliation stuff. The total washout. All this talk about serving and suffering and humbling and humiliation. It's not going to get you anywhere. I'm just going to sit here and see how it all falls apart, Jesus. I'm here to see the end. This is that great boaster. This is the one who said, I'm never going to let this happen to you, Jesus. I'm going to go down fighting. I'm going to die with you. And now look at him. First slain by that great enemy sleep. And now a simple serving girl from the very lowest class. In that culture, somebody totally insignificant. And with a few words, this little girl strikes fear into the heart of Peter. You also were with Jesus You also were with the accused, Jesus the Galilean. And that's significant, the Galilean. You know what that means? It means that guy that is not mighty, he's not sophisticated, he's not successful. He's from a rustic and backwards and despised area. You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. Nothing attractive. The branding is all wrong. This is not something you can build a cool megachurch with. This is not something that the world will swoon about and say, wow, we want to be part of that. You're with the Galilean. And what does he do? How does he respond? This mighty Peter, verse 70, he denied it before them all. That just slipped out so easily, didn't it? Because the sinner's self-preservation kicks in. You see, the theology of glory seeks success. But even more, the theology of glory seeks self-preservation at all costs even if it means denying the gospel. Because the show 
must go on. Even if it means denying the Savior whom we purport to worship with loud protestations. You know, Peter has forgotten so quickly, hasn't he, what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10? You remember what he said in Matthew chapter 10, if you just flip back there for a second, to verse 28. Matthew 10, 28, where the Lord Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in health. Look at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 33. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Peter heard that from the Master just a few chapters ago. But here he is doing it, denying the Savior before men. And notice how clever the sinful human heart can be in its self-deception. We figure if we're kind of like obscure and kind of make a word salad out of things that maybe God won't notice what we're doing. Or maybe we can fool other people. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. He denies without denying He's got to maintain deniability. I really didn't say so in so many words. And how often don't we do that? How often don't we sidestep? How often don't we use avoidance techniques so we don't have to identify with the shame of Jesus the Galilean and if somebody calls us out, how often can we not maintain deniability? I actually didn't say anything against Jesus. I just pretended not to know him. How often do we not console ourselves that we didn't actually deny him in so many words? All it takes is one little servant girl and this brave, courageous Peter is on the run. He goes out to the entrance. He's going to get out of here, verse 71. So he's going to go out of the courtyard go through that entrance tunnel or entrance way, and he wants to get to the gate, get out into the street, and he wants to flee. He went out to the entrance. This is the Peter that said, I'm going to stick with you even unto death. But it's not death that Peter is running from. Very unlikely that Peter could have suffered death. The Jews didn't have the right to kill people. Later on, they sometimes do. They, call, they killed James by stoning. But they didn't really have the legal right to kill anyone. And it's unlikely they would have been able to get Peter killed by the civil authorities. Peter's not running from death. He's running from shame. He's running from failure. He's running from suffering. He's running from humiliation. He's running from the way of the cross. He's trying to run, but he can't hide because another servant girl gets him. Another simple servant girl. She says, hey, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is in the region of Galilee. And to be a Nazarene is the same as to be a Galilean. It means that you're 
poor and underdeveloped and unsophisticated and unimportant and that you live far from the center of power and success and wealth. And what is his reaction? Verse 72, he denied it with an oath. Things are getting serious here. Peter's getting all tangled up in his theology of glory because when you worship success and power according to the world's terms, when it comes down to the wire, you will jettison, you will cut loose every doctrine, every confession, every truth of God which the world finds objectionable, which the world finds ridiculous, which the world mocks, you will deny it to save face, to save your skin. And so with an oath, isn't this rather incongruous? With an oath, Peter calls God to witness that his lie is Truth. That's what an oath is. It's calling on God to testify to the truth of what you're saying. But what he's saying is a lie. I do not know the man. This is Peter. Who in chapter 16 answered the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus said, who do you say I am? Peter said, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And now this same Peter. He says, you know what? This truth is going to hurt me. This truth is going to inconvenience me. This truth is going to set me back. This truth is going to endanger me and shame me. And so you know what? I have no idea who the guy is. And the way it sounds in English is exactly the way it sounds in the Greek or whatever. Maybe he was, yeah, we would probably be speaking Greek, not Aramaic. It's the same way. It's a very... It's a way of, of, of despising the person you're talking about. I don't know the man. I don't know the guy. So Peter's making a break for it. Verse 73, he's trying to get near that gate. But as he gets nearer to the gate, I mean, this, this place is just full of people. There's no physical social distancing going on here. There are crowds of people all around. And so as he gets near the gate, the bystanders say, wait a minute, you certainly are one of them, for your accent betrays you. You see, the Galileans had this rustic accent, which sophisticated people from Jerusalem found funny and slightly ridiculous. It's, when I first came to Canada in the 1980s, I remember hearing a lot of newfie jokes. I don't hear them anymore, thankfully. But people would joke about people from Newfoundland and would joke about the way they, they speak. In fact... There has been a time in Canada when Newfoundlers, Newfoundlanders, as they, they came to Toronto or to Montreal, they were told to, to lose their accent and to fit in with the way people talk or they wouldn't be able to get ahead. And something similar was the dynamic there in Israel. If you were from Galilee, you talked like, like, like a hick. You talked like somebody that was unsophisticated. You could not expect to get ahead in life if you had this Galilean dialect that people made fun of. And Peter's voice gives him away as one who follows the Galilean. And so he calls down curses on himself. Now, the verb here has no object in the Greek. It just says, 
then he began to invoke a curse or curses. And tied up in that verb is the idea that it could be on himself, and therefore the translators have added that so we have some clarity. That's totally legitimate. But the verb itself can also mean that he's invoking curses on, on those around. Or it can even mean that he invokes a curse on the Lord Jesus himself. And he swears. He's already including swearing as he invokes the curses if he's lying. But, but here he's cursing Christ. He's cursing Christ. Now if you turn to 1 Corinthians 12 for a moment. What does the Holy Spirit say about this? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand, says the Apostle Paul, that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so here we get to the very heart of the problem with the theology of glory. It is a type of Christianity which is devoid of the Spirit of God. It is full of the Spirit of man and of the world, and therefore it is useless. It is good for nothing. You can't put any weight on it. It fails you in your hour of greatest need. Peter's crossless Christianity drives him to abandon, to deny to reject, to curse Christ in order to save his own skin. And immediately, the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. Remember that Matthew is always calling our attention to these things. Then it was fulfilled what was written in the prophets. It was written. It came to pass. It was written. It was fulfilled. The word of God is true, comes true. And Peter and Jesus had very different ideas about how things would work out, how things should work out. All of Peter's great ideas and plans have been exposed as abject failures. What Jesus said has come true. Because the Jesus who said, you will deny me three times, is the same Jesus who spoke through the prophets. He is the word of God. What he says is. What he says happens. What he says is truth. And Peter's theology of glory is exposed as empty and fraudulent in his refusal to deny himself his hopes and aspirations his worldview his idea of success he has ended up denying the Christ and this is horrifying now there are two ways to react when our sin is exposed The Bible speaks about remorse and repentance. The Bible speaks about godly sorrow, which leads to 
repentance that leads to salvation. And the Bible speaks about worldly grief that produces death. See, worldly grief or remorse is something like this. I don't like the unpleasant consequences of my sin. I wish I hadn't done that sin because it has made my life a little less pleasant. And so if you look at the next chapter, Judas has remorse. Judas sinned deliberately. Premeditated sin. And then when he saw what were the consequences of his sin, he didn't like those consequences. And he ends it all by suicide. That's remorse. That's worldly grief. It produces death. But there is a godly grief. Godly grief which produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And that's what the Holy Spirit of God drives Peter to. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. He remembers the word of God. And the word of God is driven home into his heart. And he goes out and he weeps bitterly because he remembered the word. Now we know the rest of the story. We know about Peter's restoration. We know from the rest of the scriptural record, that this is a godly grief. Peter has been driven to abandon the theology of glory and to embrace the theology of the cross. See, You see, that's the only way to move from one theology to the other. There's only one way to move from the theology of glory to the theology of the cross, and that is through repentance. Now, as we observe our brother Peter here and just as a parenthesis here this narrative registered in the historical record of the scripture is one more evidence of the truth of God's word no historical document from this time of history would ever be produced which would bring such shame and expose such sin and failure in one of the leaders of the group that published such a document. It goes totally against everything that we know of the historical records. The historical records, if you're one of the leaders, and Peter was a leader of the church, the historical record, the leaders of communities and nations suppress the embarrassing stuff and just publish the good stuff. And the fact that the Bible tells it so honestly is one more evidence of the truth of Scripture. And as we read this, and as we look at our brother Peter in this situation, how he's reacting, the question that the Holy Spirit sets before us this morning is this, who are you denying? You see, you have to deny someone. You either deny yourself or you deny the Savior. It's one of the two. And Jesus is calling us this morning, if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the question is, who are you denying? 
This is a call to the church to stop trying to be accepted by the world, to stop soft-peddling the truths of God so that we can avoid the ridicule from the cultural elites, to stop trying to market ourselves as something that the world finds attractive or cool or acceptable. Are we, in our neighborhood, our workplace, our place of study, are we willing, are we ready to lovingly, humbly, gently, calmly stand up for Christ? Stand with Christ. Confess that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Even if it means the world will lash out and call us hateful and backwards and unsophisticated and gullible and stupid. Brothers and sisters, it's all very well for us to just kind of sit here and look at Peter there weeping bitterly out in the street. But is there room for us to weep bitterly? Is the Spirit calling on us to give up on the theology of glory and to embrace the theology of the cross? Is this a call for us to repent? If you look to yourself, you will deny Him. But if you deny yourself, you will look to Him. Now Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, as an apostle after Pentecost, has this new boldness. He embraces the way of the cross. He goes out, he preaches Christ, no matter what. And he writes in his epistles that we read later on in the New Testament, he writes of rejoicing to suffer with Christ and for Christ. And he lives it, and he teaches it, and he preaches it, And he models it even until his death, according to Christian tradition, Peter was crucified. But he was crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to die like my master Jesus. Peter learned that the way of the cross is the way to glory. He learned to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. And so, brothers and sisters, consider Him. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In the great battle of cosmic kingdoms, you cannot stand for a moment in your own strength. But look to Jesus. Cry out to him to empower you by his indwelling spirit. He is faithful. He cannot break his promises. So many times we let him down. We miss the opportunity to testify that he is the Christ. Time and time again, we fall. We fail. And yet time and time again, he picks us up. He sets us straight. Time and time again, he reminds us, in the power of my spirit, you can do this. You can be my disciple. You can deny yourself. You can take up your cross. You can follow me. So do it. Follow me. The way of suffering, the way of humiliation, 
The way which goes through the valley of the shadow of death is the way which ends up in eternal glory. Amen.